welcome to Life and Life Only. And I'm delighted to say I've got my first guest on the podcast, and this is Austin Moore. So Austin, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Excellent. Thanks for coming on. Now, I'm going to get you to introduce yourself in a second, but I know you through your brother, Russell. He and I were teachers in Thailand a oh, long time ago, 2008, I think we met. And uh, but no, we haven't been in touch all that time, but we recently got in touch and uh, we had a long chat. And funnily enough, we found a lot of the stuff we were talking about was the same stuff we were talking about in 2008 in terms of, you know, mainstream media and propaganda and all these kind of things. So it's funny that that conversation hasn't really changed. But uh, first of all, can you introduce yourself to the audience, please? I'm Austin Moore. I'm an NLP practitioner and a life coach. And I also run a digital media business as well. I've been sort of doing the NLP for quite a time now. I think it's either seven years. And I first got an interest in that when I was working in the health and fitness industry. There was a lot of personal trainers at the time in the business that were struggling to basically get clients, retain clients, deliver on the results. And we put this course together for them. And the course was biomechanics because a lot of them had actually said, I want to know more about biomechanics, about the way the body works, everything else. Mm. But then separate to that, we actually threw in this two-day slot with an NLP practitioner called uh, Nick Jarvis. And what was really funny was we did the first three days. And it ran across all the different regions across the UK. And everywhere we did it, first three days did the biomechanics. And they thought, yeah, fantastic. But then it was when they did the NLP that it dawned on them that actually it was the NLP that they really needed. And they probably should have had five days on that. Mm. Because one of the things that I think they began thinking was it's all about understanding more about the body that will help my clients and that wasn't really what it was it's more about understanding your clients their beliefs and values how they make them behave how you can make sure that you don't take responsibility for them Mm. and uh interesting enough when that was implemented it became the only heading across the whole of this organization that actually performed above budget personal training across the whole 100 clubs had been underperforming and it became the only thing that overperformed after that so it's very very powerful and that's I first experienced it and became interested in it. Do you think the um, body-mind connection's more understood or do you think it could still be better understood? You know, the word holistic is at least in the culture now. Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote a post the other day and it was actually related to what's going on at the moment with SAGE and the government and everything else and the understanding of them. One of the things I wrote, because somebody was talking about well-being, and I turned around and said, this is the problem you've got. I said, is you haven't got people on this group that understand the psychology, but then also understand the physiological part of how the psychology and that affects physiologically what happens to you. Mm. So you haven't got somebody at the moment turning around saying, well, not only are we saying we don't go out, so you're not going to be exercising as much, you're not going to be meeting people, your mental health is going to deteriorate and all these things. Well, that has physiological effects. You know that if you are stressed or you're unhappy, you'll see things physiologically can turn up in people, whether it's a sty in their eye, cold sore can start, they can get irritable bowels. So we know that the psychology then affects things physiologically in people. So I'm saying if they really understood that, then Sage would have those people on there to talk to each other. And one would say, well, we're going to basically make people a lot more unhealthy and we're going to affect their immune system and reduce their ability to fight off a virus. And they were so busy, I think, trying to scare everybody into doing what they want that they weren't thinking about if you're living in constant fear, like fight or flight, what will that do to you physiologically? 
So that's how that came about. So I still don't think that it's really understood. And you still see people talking about things like psychology as if it's witchcraft and made up. You know, and I've seen the power of what it can do. And I've seen people, and there's a girl that did the, I can't remember her name right now, but I met her. And she put together all different types of groups of people using, I don't know if you've heard of Myers-Briggs, and put them into different house areas. And Mm. she put the types of people by their Myers-Briggs into these different houses. And then they all set tasks to do. And she predicted exactly what would happen in each place psychologically, right down to the fact that in one group, she said, they're chaos. And they are just as likely when doing this task to probably set the smoke alarm off. And they actually set fire to the food and set the smoke alarm off. Oh, wow. I said, for you to even say they're probably going to set fire to me, I mean, to think it's just witchcraft or something, it's it's nothing like that at all. I think there's some understanding of stress-related illnesses, but we will get on to the COVID coverage because, I I mean, my other podcast about John Lennon, I didn't really feel that there was anything John Lennon related with COVID. So I've been kind of, I've been using my podcast as a sort of antidote, but on this podcast, we are going to get into that because I think there's so many things that need to be addressed. So I saw your interview with Sonia, Sonia Poulton, I think her name is. Yeah. There'll be a few things today that might cover the similar ground, but I don't want to just repeat the stuff that's, that you've already said there. So um, say so I think people understand stress-related illnesses, but the example I always give is something like smoking, the Alan Carr easy way to stop smoking. It was a system that he set up. It was literally called the easy way because what had happened was he was something like a 60 to 80 a day smoker. Yeah. And I think his wife, I think it was just something like his wife had said, if you literally have another cigarette, I'm going to leave you. And I'm sure it wasn't quite as simple as that, but his story is that the fact that he didn't want his wife to leave, suddenly he was able to give up smoking. What I was getting to was that I think there's even sort of propaganda involved in smoking cures because people say, oh, you know, use a Nicorette patch, smoke very light cigarettes. And, you know, that may work for some people, but I always say that, you know, if your kid's life depended on you stopping smoking like now, well, any way you could possibly stop it is to stop smoking. You would just stop instantly. Yeah, well, it's interesting because mm-hmm. what you talked about there is used within some of the techniques within things like NLP. I often give the smoking example to people. I use it in terms of a cost. So I turn around and say, what's the cost? I said, so quite often people will be offered things like free smoking cessation courses, yeah. but they're free. So actually, if you're going to something that's free, it doesn't really matter whether you give up or not, does it? Oh, I see. Yeah. Either way, who cares? You're not going to. I might as well turn up. I'll give it a go. Doesn't matter. Hmm. But it's interesting if you turn around to say to somebody, "I can help you definitely give up smoking." I can almost guarantee I will get you to give up smoking. Hmm. And they say, "Okay, great, I'm in." And you turn around and say, "Yeah, it's going to cost you a thousand pounds." If they say thousand pounds, no, I'm not doing that. Then you already know you weeded out somebody that wasn't really ever going to probably give up. They weren't invested in doing it. If someone says to you, okay, I'm going to give you a thousand pounds, conversely, they've actually done their job almost for you because by paying that cost, they really don't want it to be a waste. They will do everything that they can and follow everything you've said as much as they can, more than anybody will ever got it for free yeah, because yeah. they paid for it. Yeah. And that's no different to when you used to join a gym and they charge you a joining fee and the lifetime of a membership was always far longer with the person that paid the joining fee than the person that didn't pay it. So when there's nothing at stake, yeah. 
That's what yeah, I mean. You just come up with an example there of exactly that, which is, you know, if you, to him, there was a massive cost. Yeah, he, he valued, highly valued his marriage and his wife. Hmm. Okay. I just want to tell you briefly about the podcast itself. So it's basically about inner and outer truth. And what I'm trying to do is bridge the inner side, which would be more uh, life coaching and personal development and things like meditation, which I'm a big advocate of. And then the outer truth is more to do with alternative media. Now, the thing that bridges those two things really is psychology. I mean, I've studied psychology. I'm not a professional, but um, can you just tell us a little bit about your um, background? I mean, what's your history with psychology, let's say? Have you always had an interest in it? I've always had an interest in it. I would say that I must have possessed some natural ability, which I wasn't really aware of, and I never attributed it to anything psychological. It's a little bit like somebody saying to you, you're not a philosopher because you don't have a degree in philosophy. Well, just having a degree in philosophy doesn't make you philosophical. It means you've studied yeah. and got a degree in it. And also equally, the people you studied didn't have a degree. So you might have read about Socrates and stuff like that. You know, he didn't go and study a degree in psychology. He went and sat having coffees with people and chatting. You know, he was <laughs> philosophical and now you study him. And some people I do think have an ability to a certain level. We could bring up Darren Brown and say, you know, mm. he's a gifted individual in it mm. and he has a natural ability. And I think I always had some sort of, ability there and then i think through the health and fitness i became a lot more interested in it i had experiences during health and fitness which made me realize and studying the health fitness qualifications you know i had experiences where i had people blaming me for them not achieving results yet then i'd find out that they hadn't even turned up and done the programs but they still blamed me (laughs) and when i even said but i've just checked and you haven't even visited since i wrote the program two months ago Instead of saying, oh, sorry, yeah, you're right, that is my fault, they then went, well, I've been really busy. <laughs> so I suddenly realised, hang on a minute, something's going wrong here because I'm being blamed for this. I'm taking ownership of their problem. When I write the programme, I'm saying, you know, you're going to lose weight, almost like the programme I've written was a wave of Dumbledore's wand. <laughs> you know, they didn't have to do anything, but, you know, they'd seen this wizard and it was all going to come true. So I got more into it then, and probably like yourself, I've read lots and lots and lots of books. And I didn't really read the normal type of self-help books that often people buy because they're saying, I want to solve a problem for myself, I'll buy a book. I read things about psychologists, like people that had been uh, in things like the CIA about understanding influence. I read books for business as well, things like Good to Great by Jim Collins. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's a really famous book there. And then I read things like um, Social Intelligence, Daniel Goleman's books. Emotional intelligence. I've just literally been reading that and I'm going to do a podcast series about emotional intelligence because I love that. I've read all of the three. So I've read the destructive emotions, social intelligence, emotional intelligence. And I've even also read the other one, which was by him, which was uh, with time with the Dalai Lama called, uh, it's a force for good. Would you recommend all Um, of those equally? Yeah. Yeah. Go for them. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the best ones is the first one is I think emotional intelligence and social intelligence there's another one, Happiness by Design, and I use a lot of that in the coaching, which tells you how to understand where you place things in life. And if you put them in the wrong place, you think they're going to give you this and they don't. And then I went off to do the NLP qualification as a life coach, NLP practitioner, and I did that for a year. And since then, just been sort of you know, helping people. I do actually work with a charity, and sometimes I, some of the money I give to the charity I work with is kids' charity. 
And I don't run it really as a business as such. It's more people come to me for help. And I also use it within the other business I run. So I've done some business coaching as well. So, you know, that's kind of my my story. Probably more than fiction. I've really enjoyed reading books about the brain, about emotions, about stuff yeah. like that. There's a sort of fine line between self-help and self-development, I think. I mean, one of my one of the big ones for me was how to win friends and influence people. It's good because it's got little nuggets, little situations, and it tells you how you might handle this. Or, yeah. I've, I mean, it's been a long time since I read it, but I think it's giving situations saying, so-and-so did this and explains why it was a good thing. There's so many out there, that, but I'm sure we've read yeah. a lot of the same type of books. Yeah, there's another guy, Alan Pease. That's done some funny Alan stuff. P- oh yeah, the body yeah. language. Quite, yeah, he's quite amusing. Alan Pease, he's, he's yeah. done some really good ones as well. But yeah, there's I mean there's a few that I've read that I uh, there's the marshmallow test. I don't know if you've ever read the marshmallow oh, test. Yeah. Well, I know about yeah. the marshmallow test. Yeah, there, there's a whole book and it's just dedicated to the marshmallow test <laughs> and a predictor of outcomes in future and the accuracy of them based on that marshmallow test. It's amazing how people ended up where they ended up and the different places in terms of how a small number of people outperformed so many others in a year by one simple thing they did and then no one else did it. And it made such a huge difference, such as just writing down where you see yourself. I get the power of words and putting words down as opposed to them just floating around as a thought. There's a difference with that, I think. Yeah, writing is a huge thing for me. I mean, I used to have a blog and stuff, but just the act of writing, it's very, very therapeutic. There's a book called The Artist's Way, which was a big help to me. And it was, the book is actually like a 12 week course, but I didn't follow the course <laughs> slavishly, but I did the exercises. And one of them was, it's called the morning pages. I think it is for budding writers, but I think it'd be good for anyone. You have to cover three pages with absolutely anything every morning. Yeah. She says on day one, if you can't think of anything right, you could even write the same word a thousand times, which you're not likely to do, or you could write a shopping list. You've got to cover three pages every morning. I'm not always the most disciplined person. I probably only did it for three weeks, but every day for three weeks, just even that was a huge help. Because after a while, obviously, if you've got a writing instinct, you've got some ideas, you're not going to just write shopping lists, you're going to start writing other things. But it was just getting it down. And I've had a a diary of one form or another for years as well. And really, yeah, I mean, it's, it's never been a kind of, oh, you know, went to work, got home. She's not that kind of diary. It's just a, it's what they call journaling in America, I suppose writing down your thoughts. Sometimes they're profound thoughts. Sometimes they're just observations, you know, but uh, power of writing. Now, while you're here, NLP, I know it stands for neuro-linguistic programming. I've never been completely clear on what it is. So would you mind giving us a brief explanation of it? NLP has various sort of different elements to it that you can use. There's not like one whole thing that would tell you the different techniques that you use. Okay. But I think the simplest way to describe it would be that you are working with somebody, you're trying to help them change their beliefs because those beliefs and their values are what always dictate how you behave. And people make the mistake of thinking that you start by changing a behavior, but you can't do that because that behavior is always built around the beliefs and the values. So when people come to see me with NLP, one of the things you have to do is dig down and get to what it is that they believe about something. Yeah. And then you almost have to make help them realize that that belief may be incorrect. You could say misguided, but I suppose it's a little bit like the information that you're basing all these behaviors on and doing is in effect not correct. 
Mm. And a lot of the time people have developed, I suppose the easiest way to say it is imagine if the brain is like a computer, you yeah. genetically all get installed on you a certain software program, let's say into your brain as it develops. Some of that will be genetic and stuff like that. But then as you go through your life, let's say from birth through to maybe 18 to 21, it's what you're exposed to in life, in family, the people around you, the school you go to, all these other things where you kind of get loaded on then whatever mm. programs you get. And you build up this map of the world as you see it. Absolutely. And then when you get to 21 or 18, 21, you, know, you start to move out into the world. Over time, we often carry on using that same map forever and we yeah. don't update it. Yeah. Even though things have changed, you know, we, we've moved on, we're not a child anymore and stuff like that. And you see people in situations behaving in utterly different ways to what you might behave in that. Their map is different to you of the world. They can see something as a personal criticism or attack that you don't because maybe their map was developed on being criticised. Yeah. You know, maybe they were criticised a lot as a child. So you're trying to get back to saying, okay, the map you're using now it's probably out of date, like a sat-nav that you've never updated. Hmm. We just need to reprogram that sat-nav, which is your brain and how you view the world. And we need to get you to say, I need to update it now. That's th probably the best description of NLP. Yeah. I think reframing really is, is a huge... Yeah, reframing is a lot. I mean, I went through this, oh, probably, I'd say for the last 10 years, podcasts have been a big part of it. And some of the books that we've been talking about today, I went through this huge transition i wouldn't call it learning i'd almost call it unlearning and um resetting and i know reset has now got uh, all kinds of other connotations hasn't it we'll get onto that later yeah, but, can't uh, use that one anymore yeah <laughs> no, stolen. exactly yeah <laughs> and one of the things was uh there was a podcast i used to listen to you know when someone says something and it just you know it, it's going to stick in your head forever you're going to remember it forever and one of them was talking about how our view of the world, a lot of it is is narratives. It's stories we're telling ourselves. Correct, yeah. And, you know, it was such a big thing for me because then when I went back and I tried to go back to a sort of situation in my life, particularly one that had caused me, like, problems or pain or anything, thinking, yeah, what was the story I told myself? And it's such a big thing to suddenly say, well, maybe none of the stories you're telling yourself is the reality or not the whole reality, you know. So – what I do, and I try not to get too obsessive about it, in a funny way, I'm monitoring my reactions through the day, you know, and you don't want to drive yourself mad with it. You don't want to say, oh, I had a reaction. Oh, let me write down what that was, you know, two minutes later. It's not that. It's more of a, a thing that you do through the day you have in your mind. And it, it's more like if, if I get annoyed about anything or angry about anything, it's almost like self-coaching, isn't it? And, it's, yeah. and one of the things that I think we're going to get to, because I, I really want to start talking about... Um, the media coverage of the last year. I want to, I want to get to the sort of outer truth stuff with you because I really want to get your opinions on that. But um, so much of it is presumption as well. Don't you find that we, we all make so many presumptions and they're based on our upbringing. They're based on what our parents told us and our school teachers yeah. told us. Yeah. And that's, I mean, uh, I wrote a blog about, you know, what is reality and the fact that there is no set, you know, we, everyone has their own reality. It's subjective. And, I think in one of the books, if you're reading emotional intelligence, there's a part in the book, I don't know whether it's in that one or destructive emotions, and it, it talks about, you know, if you're driving along in the car and 
you see someone weaving in and out of the traffic and, you know, they, they cut you up and pull in front of you and make you break. And you might start screaming at them and be filled with rage yeah. and anger at them and everything else. But then what if I told you or you were informed after that that in the back of the car was their sick child who'd been really badly injured and they were trying yeah. to rush them to hospital? Yeah. It's like at that point when it was going on, you chose to only think negative. You didn't choose to think there could be any kind of viable reason for this. You still chose to go, well, I actually don't know why they're doing it, but I will choose that it's for a negative reason. It's bad. and I'll get angry. You know, so you do choose how you feel a lot of the time about something. And that's what you were saying earlier about how that inner monologue, what does it say? At that point, it's saying to you, this guy's a disaster and he's a danger and kill me and I'm going to beep at him. I might try and start chasing him myself now. You know, you never give a thought to what if there's another reason? If that were the reason, how would you feel about it? And Well, I wouldn't feel so angry. Yeah. I mean, in the Emotional Intelligence book, I mean, I'm sure we could talk for hours just purely about that, but they go through like people who've had a certain childhood Mm. and, you know, what happens you know, almost from day one, people who are brought up in abusive situations, for example. And when you read it, you suddenly think, how can I feel angry with this person? And then the trouble comes when when this person does something terrible and that society says they have to be punished for it. If they commit some terrible crime, I I guess we have to have some justice system, of course. But when you read this book and and it actually takes you step by step why that happens in their brain, you know, and the changes that happen in their brain, you know, it really changes your outlook and it just makes you empathize a bit more, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's difficult to empathize with how can you find yourself empathizing with somebody that's either done something like, uh, you know, a psychopath has done something terrible or, Mm. you know, there's been some kind of level of abuse, you know, of whatever. I'm not even going to go there, but how do you find yourself empathizing? It's like almost impossible to empathize. I mean, I'm quite a pragmatic, you know, I would, I almost lack a bit, emotion sometimes i need to switch more of it on sometimes when i speak to people or i talk about a situation i realize that i am looking at it by removing emotion it's almost scientific i mean people used to say god you're like spock yeah you're <laughs> logical on everything yeah and a bit robotic on things but that's because i'll look at something and i'll say you know someone someone often says something like oh well, you know psychopaths are crazy and i'll say no the psychopath thinks you're crazy you know if they see somebody unconscious on the floor they're programmed to think, well, why wouldn't someone steal their wallet? Or why wouldn't you? Mm. They think you're crazy that you don't. Mm. That's how they work. It's not that someone consciously decided to be. It's part of the development of the brain. And mm. when they're exposed to things that you and I would see as, in a functional MRI, that we would see as abhorrent, it stimulates their brain. People can sometimes say, I have no idea how that ever happened. You know, Sometimes they never had any abuse. They didn't experience any abuse in their childhood. Sometimes they did. And sometimes, you know, that is what set it off, lit the spark for it. Because yeah. there are plenty of people, I think. I, don't, I can't remember what the percentage is you now in the population. I don't know if you remember. Is it 4%, 5 I can't remember what it is that are classed as uh, sociopathic, but That's they funny. never carry out the things that people would think, well, you know, but they might be working in jobs where they have to, behave without actually any remorse in a quite Machiavellian way to think if I do this trade or this deal or this thing, I know that millions of people are going to suffer across the globe for it, but I'll make 4 million quid today. 
Yeah, and we can call it we can call it an externality, and then it won't sound as bad. You know, corporations and things. Yeah, you know, some of us couldn't do the job because we'd be wired to immediately go, "No, I can't do that. It's terrible." Yeah, it doesn't even cross their minds to do that. This is a different way of being programmed. But you know, can you hate them for it? Yeah, it's so hard to know those because it's it's hard to know when it is an instinct and when they have thought it through. That's the thing we don't know, isn't it? But I know what you mean. Yeah, I mean, perhaps one thing we could clear up to a misconception is that. Psychopath generally refers to someone who's going to do someone physical harm, for example, like the Hollywood yeah. psychopath. But from the reading that I've done, it's more like, like you said, it's just this instinct to do immoral actions or not even see them as immoral. And that the majority of psychopaths are going to go around, they may not get in trouble with the law, they may not do anything criminal, but they may also be very successful in things like big business and big politics, let's call it. Yeah, definitely. It's yeah. a huge advantage in those industries. It is. You know? I've seen it. I've seen it in business myself. Right. I've seen people that I know are going to do really well at a certain thing. I know they'll do far better than I will because I won't make that decision if I know that it's going to cost somebody else. It's just not something I'm happy to do. I suppose an example would be a salesman who persuades a pensioner to give away their yeah. life saving. Yeah, something yeah. like that, you know? Yeah, and I've, I've been in sales for years and there's been so many occasions where People used to say to me when I went to a garden centre years ago and like everyone would leave and the trolley would be full of stuff. And someone would say to me, like, you know, well, how did you convince them to buy all that stuff? And I said, well, I didn't really because I just genuinely told them what they would need to have to do the job properly. And they did need that to do it. You know, what they were going to buy was not going to solve the problem. They needed to have these five things. So that's what they needed. So I never went into it thinking, oh, I'll just tell you anything to get you to wheel a trolley full of stuff out. So I've always based it on. It is honestly what you do require to do a good job. But if I think somebody doesn't need something, I'd rather just say, you just don't need it. Yeah, I've been the same. I've, I've seen like the smooth salesman and, and I know they're going to do well in life. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, life, just... life, coaching, life coaching is actually really difficult as well because a lot of the time you end up in a position of you know, mm. something going on really bad at the moment for you. And I, now I'm saying to you, give me money. And then... You think, well, but if you don't give me money, is it going to be like the smoking and you won't give up because you didn't pay for it? But, you know, some people are just in a situation that you really feel bad right now. You need help, you know? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I really want to talk to you about certain subjects as propaganda and uh, obviously what's been going on for the last 12 months. You know, I've been trying to make sense of it. I'm going to guess you've probably been tagged as a conspiracy theorist more than once in your life, as I have. Have you or not? Never, ever, until now. Oh, I and see. I haven't been tagged by anybody. I've seen references that I guess are them referring to me as. Prior to this, I was never really particularly, you know, people talked about the Twin Towers falling down and came up with the fact that how did they fall like that? And they looked at it and they said that, you know, it couldn't collapse. And I kind of just went, no, I just genuinely went, look, it was a terrorist attack. The planes hit it, it collapsed. Like, you know, it mm. was a horrendous thing i watched it live at the time you know and other things i just was very much no i and it didn't mean that i dismissed what they thought because i was always open to hearing it but i didn't generally go with it i didn't see it as a viable thing because for me it was just too complex and complicated the mechanics are too difficult i think most things are more a bit like a magician they're more, more like sleight of hand they're misdirection they're more less than a conspiracy you know the conspiracy is kind of added on to it so i've never really been tagged until recently and that probably comes from 
some people didn't even listen to the conspiracy theorists about anything, whereas mm. I would often hear it mm. because I'm one of those people that's happy to hear anything. I'm happy to listen to all of it, and then I'll go away and I'll do some critical thinking. I'll think it over and I'll come to my own conclusions. But a lot of these people just dismiss them as they're crazy, they tin foil hat wearers and all this kind of thing. Where mm. I'd actually had listened to some of it, so now when I see some of the things, I kind of think, well, some of these people have managed to do a real Nostradamus. I remember this being said so accurately, you know, like a, a written out. This is what will happen, detailed out. I think, how did that? How did they guess? How were they so accurate mm. from everything, from new variants of COVID coming out to keep us in lockdown to, you know, it was just so accurate. And then you find other things like why was the government buying up all the orders for PCR tests in 2018 if COVID didn't come out to 2019? You know, it came out end of 2019. Why were there massive orders for the PCR tests in 2018? That's odd. And that's so there's more for me. There's more of a suspicion that I don't really, I can't understand. And then there's more of a, some of the decisions and some of the things I just, I think people either have short memories like a goldfish it's difficult to have somebody stand up. I mean, watch people on TV saying, like Van Tam standing up saying masks don't work. There's a study in China over 10 years. There's no benefit to wearing masks. We've got to follow the science on this. And then, you know, several weeks later, masks work. Everyone wear them now. We need to follow the science on this. But then nobody actually mentions any science saying they work. And so I think, where did that come from? Because you literally mm. stated something that was a 10-year study. And now you've just come up with, and I find all that, I question it, whereas maybe yeah. some people just go, oh, oh, okay, six weeks ago we weren't doing mine. Now we are. I'll just get my mask tomorrow. Mm. Just compliance without even question. Yeah, what I actually meant was not that you actually believed in, say, 9-11 or JFK or 7-7. It was more this tag, which is so general nowadays. Yeah, well, I think that tag is used, isn't it, to discredit you? Yeah, and that's what I was like, referring now, to. Now yeah. you can basically come up with something that's, a very legitimate question but the best way to then make people think i'm you know to ignore you or or something is to discredit you by calling you something that's got a negative handle on it so i can just turn and say we are your conspiracy theorists just immediately throw that out we've kind of become a society of doing that a lot um, we see it a lot in politics we see it a lot in government we see a lot of people shutting down debates and questions by you know, trying to name somebody, put somebody in a box so that you discredit them immediately yeah. so they're not listened to. And I think I even saw it in Parliament where someone was saying, look, you've got a, what was the name that was given to people? Let it rip. Let it rip, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone was saying, look, every time we say, should we look at a different direction? I know I saw an MP stand up saying, look, the House has to stop labelling people as you can't let it rip. When all we do is suggest a different option, you then label us with that to discredit the option that we're discussing, which isn't even let it rip. It's not even saying let it go. It's saying, could we do this? But it's almost like you're not interested, and the best way is to label me with something. That's where the psychology comes in, because clearly there's, in things like advertising and media and politics, you can't tell me that there's not people behind the scenes who know about psychology and they know about our subconscious no, and possibly our, our unconscious, so they actually know us this is what I could never get people to understand. If you've got experts doing that, they know us better than we know ourselves. I mean, I'd say a lot of it is denial with a lot of people. Because one of the things you brought up in that talk I, I saw of yours, and something I've brought up when I read this book about human nature, no one wants to believe they're being duped. 
So yeah. what they will do is twist what's happening to avoid. It's basically their ego, really. It's their ego doesn't want to say, oh, I was wrong. I've been fooled. You know, someone I'm quite close to, I'm not going to name because I don't want to embarrass them, once said to me, I can't be influenced by someone I've never met. <laughs> and I said, uh, hmm, <laughs> I think you can. You know, this whole propaganda industry is designed, you know, you've got experts designing how can we get certain reactions and something like let it rip. That's not just organically happened. No, and if you read the uh, the importance of it, the fact that Sage have assembled a Sage Behavioral Sciences team, yeah, shows you that they've gone okay. And then they had a meeting, which I discussed on there. I think it was the twenty third of March, two thousand and twenty, wasn't it, or something? Yeah, like that's they had right. the Sage Behavioral Sciences subgroup meet to say we need to get the population to do everything we want and adhere to everything we're going to do. So let's discuss how we're going to do it. And all of that was psychology, every part of it. Even the fact that, you know, if I ask you to spend a couple of weeks regularly clapping for the NHS, it might mean that you then feel a level of guilt then and other people might feel social disapproval for you if you were to say, should we really be protecting NHS because we pay for them to protect us and doesn't it just mean that it's been really badly underfunded and badly operated by successive governments for many years? Mm. I'm sure the people in it are lovely. And I've got nothing against them, but it means it's completely broken, isn't it? Because it can't cope because other company, other countries have coped and haven't thrown everybody else under the bus who's got cancer treatments and everything else. You know, they've yeah. continued as normal. Well, that's what you do. You get everybody clapping for it. I mean, that was so strange because I remember when the, the clapping was, a, it was eight o'clock, wasn't it? Every, every evening. And I remember I was walking home because I did manage to, even at the height of it, I did manage to go out for walks and stuff. And I was walking home and there were a bunch of people clapping. And I was thinking, am I supposed to clap as I'm walking? What's the protocol? You know, what? I'll tell you something really interesting that made you laugh. My friend lives in a village in, uh, in Hertfordshire. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's, a, there's a street there that goes from North End, I think it is, or, or North Street to South Street. And he said there's a local Facebook group for the village. And uh, someone posted on there saying, uh, great turnout for the clap. Well done, North Street. Very disappointed in the level of clapping down at South Street. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people are, you know, if you said to somebody, have you ever thought about what you're doing and why you're doing it, whether you're being manipulated as you're doing, you know, not only would they probably not even be able to believe or consider that for a second, they're even then doing the whole social disapproval part. Yes. Of you lot didn't clap loud enough. So I'm going to single you out and say, you need to clap louder now and more of you need to have come out. We're disappointed in you. So the social disapproval part has worked fantastically well. Yeah. But this stuff's been around for years i mean every governments and uh they, they always have psychologists in there and i mean psychologists is nothing more powerful than people who realize and they don't mm. realize that marketing companies and ad executives you know there's psychology in absolutely everything that we do yeah and um of course propaganda was rebranded as public relations wasn't it yeah whenever you see you know pr public relations that's propaganda and that's psychology and not saying every single part of it is nefarious but you know you've got to be at least wary of it or aware of it. Go back to Darren Brown. Um, I've watched so many of his videos. I haven't for a while, but there's so many classic ones. I, I can't remember if this is Darren Brown or not. Have you seen the one where there's a bunch of people in a room and there's a buzzer and everyone stands up when the buzzer goes off? I'm sure you've seen variations of it. Yeah, I think I have seen something like that. Yeah, I mean, tell me more. Yeah, I'll explain the one I saw. Okay, so it's um, 
I think it was something like a doctor's waiting room. It was, it was somewhere where some people were going to be somewhere for a while. And everyone in the room was an actor except one young lady. And she came in and every, I don't know, 30 seconds or something. there was. Oh, I do remember now. Yeah. There was a buzzer. So everyone stood up and you see the girl and she's kind of, mm, why is everyone standing yeah. up? Second time it goes off, she stands up. And what happens is gradually they get rid of the actors and they get more and more genuine people coming in. And it gets to the point where there's no actors in the room at all. And every single person is standing up every time this buzzer goes off. And that's the power, isn't it, of of people all doing something. Let's talk about religion briefly. You know, Mm. if I can get you into the church or or wherever, and there's going to be lots of people doing a certain behavior, then you go in as the person who's, not the actor, in a way. Yeah. You know, I know they're not acting, but they're all carrying something out. You know, they stand when they stand, they sit when they sit, they sing the song, you know, and you just begin to find yourself joining in with it, whether you like it or not. That's the power of a lot of people doing it. And the power works both ways. It works with a positive and a negative, doesn't it? Yeah. You sit people in a room and you ask them not to speak, but sit in a circle facing each other the people in the room will always adopt without any speech the most powerful emotion of the person who's got the most powerful emotion in the room kind of the alpha yeah so if it's the person if the person with the most powerful emotion is negative then everyone will go out leave the place feeling much more down and if the most powerful emotion in the room is a positive one but that's without any speech yeah no one's allowed to talk multiple times they prove that every single time it's amazing Almost an alpha emotion, like like you said, the strongest one. The strongest, yeah. Yeah, will sort of infiltrate a big group. Can we kind of drill down maybe into where does this compliance come from? Is it school or is it just a combination of, not that we're going to have a go at parents here, but uh, parents, school, is it just? You know what, I think it's um, two things. I think we as humans want to fit in with others and we socially want to be part of things. I've got to be careful because I am generalizing and I can't. Yeah, no, of course. And I know what I say, someone will listen to this and probably say, oh, you made it sound like that's everybody. No, but you've got to generalize when you're talking about humans, haven't you? Yeah. yeah, Go ahead. I mean, you know, I I can literally say, for instance, you know, there's been studies that say, you know, 68% of a population have, you know, average or below IQ. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's roughly 65 or 73. I don't know. But what I'm saying is generally there's a figure there of a percentage. I don't know what it is of more people want to conform yeah. than not conform. More people will want to check how they look and make sure they look right and uh, care about how they look and, and, and how they're going to be perceived by others. Then you'll find people that say, I just don't care. Mm. I'm not bothered. So there's always going to be less non-conformists, I think, and a lot more conformists. We haven't changed, really. You know, the world has moved massively fast, mm. but humans We've not changed. So that's why you can drop us in a situation now and we will revert back to something that you'll think, how is that possible? How have you, you know, if there really were a collapse of, of this earth, you know, your next door neighbor would soon be, you know, trying to steal all your stuff. And we would revert back very quickly because we haven't had the time to develop or change at all. And we are predominantly conformists by nature. Yes. It was beneficial to our survival to be liked historically if you were liked you survived more than if you were disliked yeah. you know going back to when it didn't take much to be disliked to be smacked around the back of the head with a bit of wood when you're in the forest and never be seen again you know being liked was favorable so that still exists and then i think you're right in mentioning school because 
look at we don't need no education (laughs) (laughs) a brick in the wall and that that song probably is true today as it was when they wrote it based on a very conforming type of and i mean they went a couple of them went to the school i went to which was the purse and uh, i went to the purse junior school at the time and i mean that was very you go into a school everyone's got the same uniform buy the uniform look Mm. the same everything's got to be run like clockwork it's almost more prison than school in a way and it doesn't often cater for a non-conformist a non-conformist if anything in a school is seen as a troublemaker absolutely somebody that is more likely to end up probably in detention or causing problems because they'll ask a question which you'd think would be what you'd want but sometimes you know no don't question just listen do as you're told you know arrive when i tell you sit when you're told don't speak up i mean i remember this is a terrible thing i remember going to school called the shrubbery in um Cambridge and I mean I've never actually said this on a recorded right. live this thing is. to anybody so I'm going from like you know safe space of maybe telling my wife a story to possibly telling thousands of people <laughs> and I remember turning up there and uh you had this bit in the day where you you all had to I don't know if you remember it where you I don't know if you did it but you had to put your head on your desk and like sleep or rest was it primary school or something it would have been before I was seven so I would have been like you know infant old, school so. infant Infants. school that was it yeah mm. So I was that age, actually, when I asked some questions in class and I was told if I didn't stop asking, I'd get the ruler. And I was summarily taken upstairs and had the ruler, wooden ruler, smacked over the back of my knuckles for asking questions. Yeah. And then on another occasion, I, um, they said it's time to do the sleep thing. You've got to have a rest. But I went to go to the rest, but I need to go to the toilet. So I raised my hand and said, so I need to go to the toilet. She said, you can't. You've got to rest. Put your head down. So I sat there and then I, I put my hand again. I said, no, I, I really need to go to the toilet. I've, I've got to go to the toilet. He said, if you don't put your head down, then you'll go up to the headmistresses and get hit with the ruler again. So I then just had to resign myself to put my head down and just weeing on the chair oh. in my trousers, school trousers or whatever, and just wet myself in infant school because the threat of me not doing that was to be hit with a ruler Jeez. at five or six years old. You know, it's not as excessive as that now. And I mean, I remember they had to go and get me, you know, change of pants or something from the lost property and put it on and then explain to my mum. And I'm sure the story was uh, edited for my mum's benefit. That's a severe end of it. But if you look at it, when you're saying, how does it work at school? I mean, I was a non-conformist kid as well. So I wouldn't do as well in school. Yeah, I mean, I I remember there was a kid from our school who actually mentioned on another podcast, I think, and when we look back at it now, we've sort of discussed him at various times. And we felt like maybe he just kind of, I don't know, saw through the bullshit quicker than most people do. I think there's a point where most thinking people realize how much bullshit there is <laughs> just in the world, you know, in the media, stuff people are telling you. And it happens at various stages. And I think some of the nonconformists at school, this guy in particular, he would come out with this amazing stuff. Like he was a really good writer. I mean, I don't really know. I kind of lost touch with him years ago, but he had a really rough time because if you take it from the teacher's point of view, the whole school thing is fairly unnatural anyway. So a teacher's got to take care of 30 kids, you know, who are kind of a lot of the time are going to be wired on sugar. You know, they've got vending machines full of Coke and chocolate and everything, you know, everything stacked against the teacher in one sense. If you've got a nonconformist, maybe in a different environment where there's only seven kids in the class, you could give them some special attention and try and nurture that. But the whole thing's yeah. set up where they're just a pain in the ass to you. 
You know, you're mm. trying to get through the day as a teacher. Obviously, you know, you've got to have some integrity, you know, and there were certain teachers who are, I look back and I think they were so skillful at being nice, being entertaining and controlling the class just sort of effortlessly, but it's yeah. a fairly rare skill. Yeah. So I can see it from the teacher's point of view that these dissident kids, you know, are a pain in the ass. I get it. Just going back to another experiment I saw, again, you've probably seen variations of this. It was a bunch of kids in, uh, I think they're in a gym or a sports hall or something. And they said to the kids, right, I'm going to ask you a question. And it was something like, what's the capital of England? And they were like 10-year-old kids, so they were all going to know the answer. Is it London or is it Paris? And again, they told 19 out of 20 of these kids, run to the to the answer, Paris. And there was only one kid they hadn't told the answer to. They said, right, what's the capital of England, everybody? Is it London or Paris? If it's London, run there. If it's Paris. And, of course, the one kid who wasn't the actor, so to speak, started to run to London and then realised. And I think they were told also to laugh at him or something. It was a little bit cruel, but I think mm. after it was done, yeah, they calmed the kid down. I don't think the kid was too hard. <laughs> and it was this poor kid's face, and he he gets halfway there, and he sees everyone else going, oh, what are you doing? You know, and, and, of course, then he ran to yeah. the wrong answer. And it's funny because I was, uh, you know, a lot of the time I was the kid running to that one sometimes. and. I was a bit like that, yeah. I know I was running to the right answer or something else, but I just stayed there. I was a definite 100% non-conformist all the time. Wow. I would always question stuff and just think, I don't see the point in, you know, why are we doing this? You need to get me on board with this because I don't really get the point in it. You have to explain. I'm not just wanting to do this because you've just told me. I need to understand and suppose the mechanics about it. And, you know, I wanted to know. Mm. But did your peers turn against you or did some of them admire it or what was it? general reaction would you say i remember when i left the uh, i left the purse school at 11 to go off to a what we call a normal school and um i got given a, an, an award or whatever it was that they gave out to one kid in the year or so i got this award for being basically just like a generally the nicest kid do you know what i mean but i got booted out of that school which is quite an achievement really because my parents were paying for it as well <laughs> so to get thrown out of a school that your parents are paying for for a private education to get chucked out was is a real achievement, really, because usually they'll just take the money, won't they, and go for it. I obviously must have yeah. been a real lost cause, along with my other friend Mike. My brother Russell carried on to the upper school, and so did my other brother Gavin, and I got I got the chop. But mm. um, I still got this award, which I remember thinking, well, that's nice. So I remember the teacher saying, you know, nice lad and everything else, but, you know, I constantly, I suppose, need open a book, page so-and-so. I was one of those. It's like, okay, why are we doing this? What's it about? I don't get it. And if you don't explain it or you don't make it exciting enough for me, you've lost me. Yeah. And what was probably maybe seen as, oh, he's not very smart, I'm not very intelligent. Well, there's a different type of intelligence. There's just book smart and sit there and just read. And then I think there's a critical thinking of intelligence. That I think about the whole thing. Mm. And I think there's kids like that probably out there that get labelled as also having things like, you know, ADHD or something else. And some of those kids maybe they do have a condition of a sort or we'll put them yeah. on some kind of a spectrum if you want to call it but sometimes they just need that amazing teacher that you or i once found in one class i had a teacher called dr gill biology i thought he's amazing brilliant teacher really engaging everyone respected him mm. and he always came dressed like he was going fly fishing and then uh, i found out he did do fly fishing and then he said he'd teach me fly fishing and then I turned up once, you know, on a break time by the, the squash court or whatever, we brought the rod and we taught me how to fly fish. And that's the kind of teacher you thought, yeah, I'll never, I'll never mess around. I'll just 
you don't even need to convince me. I won't even ask a question because you've got all the time in the world for someone like that. Whereas a lot of the teachers, you don't get that, do you? The one I remember was, was mentioning earlier, he's called Mr. Woodward, yeah, and he taught English. I think he was also a tennis player as well. And yeah, he's, I think it's a sort of poise. And what I learned, I mean, I taught kids for a while, but I got out there after about a year and I, I've been teaching adults sort of exam preparation, things like that for 15 years or so now. What I learned is that if you lose it, if you get triggered, I know tr- trigger is a real buzzword nowadays, isn't it? If you get triggered as the teacher by a naughty kid, then you're really in trouble because they'll all start laughing at you. You've got to have this sort of poise and a certain detachment and then they respect you. But, you know, it's, it's very difficult. I've never taught in a school and um, I don't envy them, particularly now. I mean, it's got so standardized. I remember um, my nephews are, God, they're now 20, two of them are 20, two of them are 17, which is scary. But uh, I remember when my youngest nephew was eight or nine and I happened to look at his school report and it had hardly any sort of hand writing, r- stuff written by hand. It was all just a bunch of boxes and it was like, um, he is able to facilitate uh, blah, blah, blah. And then you just tick the box. And I'm like, what the fuck does a nine-year-old have to facilitate? I mean, he doesn't even know the meaning <laughs> of the word. And then it also said, because my, my youngest nephew is really bright. He never took the marshmallow test, but he would have definitely passed it because he had a sort of calmness that was mm. very unusual for someone of that age. What was the other thing? Yeah, it said something like, oh, he has a tendency to be silly. And I'm like, well, you know, he is nine. I mean, <laughs> or even eight. Yeah. I think he was eight or something, you know? So- and, I, and you look at it as well and think to yourself, if there's only these certain boxes, let's say there's 10 boxes, and those 10 boxes have specific sentences next to each one that's the same for all 30 kids in the class and all 200 in the year, and then the teacher's just ticking them, mm. then that's totally standardising every child on 10 things. Yeah. Nothing outside of that. Yeah, there's kids that were good at academic stuff, and mm. then there were kids that were just born fast. And now we've moved into a place where we effectively punish the fast kid who might only ever be popular or be awarded anything for being fast by sort of saying, oh, we're now going to do away with racing now and there's no first place, everyone's a winner type. It's like, well, she's not a winner in maths or English or you don't give everybody an A in that. Giving him a D there and an F and his only time or her only time that she gets to actually feel like, wow, was because they could you know, jump high or run fast or were good at basketball or something else. You just took that away. You know, it's so intent on thinking, oh, who's losing out here? Well, that you don't think people have certain things, you know, and we should all be allowed to celebrate. That's almost like saying, oh, you know, every time your sister or brother has a birthday, we're going to have to pretend it's yours as well. You don't do that. You let them have their birthday. Yeah, yeah. And then the other kid has their birthday. It's their time, you know, and we sort of take that away now to try and say, oh, no, no, we'll get rid of all of that. You'll know, of course, of the Howard Gardner and the multiple intelligences theory. That's a big one with me. I teach that. I'm lucky because with my English classes, I teach adults and they're generally quite high levels. So I can bring in all this interesting stuff and they're very receptive to it. Mm. So things like multiple intelligences. So, you know, I mean, I am a musician. I guess I've got musical intelligence, but I'm still very envious of someone who can lift up the bonnet of a car and know what's going on, you know. So, (laughs) you know, yeah, mechanical things and being able to use machines and stuff. It's very difficult to be high on all those intelligences, but you can work on it, though, you know? I'm not sure the drawing or the, the musical side is anything that anyone would ever want me to work on because even if I uh, tried my hardest, I think it would still be terrible. 
I have made efforts at some point and it, yeah, it doesn't happen. Fair enough. The two for me that I guess I've really worked on, this goes back to the psychology is interpersonal, intrapersonal. So interpersonal is obviously between people learning about how people tick and things and intrapersonal is about yourself. And that, that intrapersonal one involves often a lot of uh, painful stuff, you know, dealing with your own ego, realizing that and say you've been duped or you even you dupe yourself, you know, you, you, you make up these narratives that you believe yourself. I think that's, that's a big thing to work on. Yeah. I mean, that's what's going on um, at the moment. Yeah. A lot of people don't want to feel that they, we spoke about earlier where you don't want to feel like you've been conned because if you've been conned, you're then questioning how intelligent you are or hmm. you expect if you have been conned that it must be the most intricate con of the century. Not that it was really simple. Yeah. Because the more simple the con, the more stupid you feel and doubt yourself. And, you know, you see that all the time when people have to talk on one of these programs about how they received an email or a phone call from somebody that you know, said this and did that. And as they're saying it back, you can see them just outwardly cringing at having to tell the story hmm. because they know that everybody listening is thinking, what? How did you end up falling for that? Yeah. But it's the simpler it is. So right now we could say, there's truths out there at the moment regarding what's going on that we've talked about earlier, and there's lies. But ultimately, sometimes it is much easier to believe the simple lie than the complex truth. Mm. The minute you have to explain something, it becomes a little bit complex and the bright people switch off and go, I think it just sounds like the lie is a lot more believable. Yeah. So then the lie becomes the truth. Mm. And we're always taught, make a lie if you're going to make one make it stick as close to and as believable as it possibly can be. Don't embellish it too much and everything mm. else because the more complex the lie gets, the more likely you to be found out about it. But if you're going to lie, you make it the simple lie. And then once you can reverse it and have the lie simple but the truth complicated, then more people are always going to believe the lie. Yeah. It takes critical thinking. It takes a lot of researching and going through and being open to questioning and if it's a complex one, people often just go, do you know what, life's short, I haven't got a lot of time, you know, I'll just do as it says and get on with it. And if everything's all right in my bubble, in my space, then I'm not really going to think outwardly about the rest of the world. So someone might say to you, if you don't follow the rules, you're endangering lives and you're a murderer. And if you don't adhere to this, they're wearing their mask and you're not wearing your mask. And because you're not wearing yours, you know, you're, you know, you're dangerous and everything else. But Generally, people only really care about themselves and their immediate surroundings. So when they're saying, I care about, altruistically care about, you know, everybody mm. everywhere, you think, well, if that were the case, we wouldn't have, I think, it, isn't it a child under 15 dying every 12 minutes in the world? We wouldn't have the poverty we have and we wouldn't have dirty water problems. We wouldn't have mm. children being sold into slavery. You know, none of this would be happening if everyone apparently really cared about everyone else. And if we really did care, then it wouldn't be too difficult to say, well, what's going to happen to the poorest people in the world when mm. economies crash? Who will it affect? Mm. It will affect the worst off. The most disadvantaged will be the ones to suffer. Yeah. But most people, if they were truly, like you said earlier, introspective, they would say, what do I care about? They'd say, I care about me my wife, my child, my mum, my dad, my brother, and then it kind of stops and they're not really looking elsewhere. There's only a few people 
that really look at a bigger picture and are able to say, you know, I'm going to have to understand that it could jeopardise someone I love or something else, but it might save millions of others. It's a different option, but it's very hard to do that unless you really are able to look bigger and outside of just the things that you personally care about. And someone said that on me a call the other day. Their solution or their answer to why they believe that everything should be done like it was came down to, I can't imagine anything happening to my dad. That's the end of it. Hmm. When you drilled and kept asking, why, why, why you got? Because I couldn't cope with anything happening to my mum or dad. Again, this is where this, the social ostracism comes in. Because if you actually said that to someone, if you said, I've done loads of soul searching, and I'm just going to be honest with you, then first of all, there's also a stigma against, uh, I'm going to say, quote unquote, cynicism. And I just, in fact, one of the earlier episodes of this podcast was about that, how being quote unquote positive isn't always a great thing because sometimes it, it will mask you from an uncomfortable reality. Yeah, but I think our society, exactly. Well, that's the thing, you know, one man's cynic is another man's realist, you know, it mm. comes down to that, doesn't it? While you were talking, there, I was thinking, yeah, there's a huge stigma against cynicism, you know, and people will say, oh, you're, you're moaning and, you know, and all these kind of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's yeah. so many subtle social things. And one of them is, you know, got to be positive. And I'm all for being positive, believe me. But it's it's a sort of <laughs> positive realism, I don't know. <laughs> you know what we do with that, though? What's, what's clever or what's not just clever, but you're talking about, you know, using it. Seemingly, human beings really struggle to find that middle place. There's two options. There's light or dark. There's positive, there's negative. There's a, what about realistic? Why can't there be that place? There's lockdown or let it rip. There's not protect the vulnerable, do this, do that. You know, there's no other option. And to stop anyone having a conversation about any realistic other example, you just have to label them one or the other. It's really funny because I don't, I expected 40 years ago and, you know, and as I traveled, you know, I always thought that things would become less divided. Yeah. I thought people would become less divisive. I thought they'd understand over time and I thought they'd be more willing to look at other, you know, that's where I saw it, but then I, it's never happened. It's A or B and nothing else. You're a vegan or you're a, a killer. You know, you are the enemy because you decided to eat meat and it doesn't fit with what I want. Well, how's that going to get somebody who does eat meat to like you in the first place? And how is it going to get them to consider listening to you and maybe taking on board some options? And wouldn't it be a better place to be in the middle where maybe you could be a vegan or a meat eater, but maybe we got the majority of the population to just reduce meat consumption by 50%. Mm. Or we got people to not only reduce it by 50%, but buy local and maybe go back to fishing, hunting, whatever, a more truthful existence. I just think it's a shame people can't just find a middle place to accept. You know, in government, there's the opposition. Yeah, you've you've almost got to choose the opposite, whatever happens. Yeah. And that's why we never meant society, because we like to form the group and fit into that group. And I find everything, I might be wrong, this is my perception, this is my reality, things that used to be choices now, are almost becoming like belief systems instead of just being a choice of something. They have to come with a lot of belief behind them and, and then they become a political thing 
over something that's just food. The food's politicised and there's a group here and another group there. And, and you just think, it, how is it like that? I put a tweet up the other day talking about your mainstream media thing. As you probably know, I feel that the, I mean, I'm not a fan of the mainstream media. I think you know, mainstream media manipulates us all the time. And um, did a tweet the other day. Somebody shared a couple of things. and It was mainstream media things. And I said, well, you know, I'd be a bit careful of that. You know, the mainstream media like clicks. They're clickbait. They put things up to stir up emotion and work towards whatever tribe you are behind. So I just said, you know, you want to be careful of that. And I just put the hashtag and said, look, you know, in my, in my opinion, the mainstream media is the enemy of the people. And then I got this tweet back, and it was a guy that followed me for ages. He just wrote, he didn't want to listen to all that Donald Trump stuff or Stalinist thoughts, blah, blah, blah. It didn't turn out well for him. Good evening. And then after that, I was blocked. <laughs> oh, shit. And I thought, wow. how did that become anything to do? With, you know, I know Trump's not a fan of them, but, you know, just because now he's become not a fan and a group of people don't like him. Now, if you're not a fan of yeah. the mainstream media either, even if you haven't been forever. Now I'm a fan of his and it didn't work out for him and I'm something to do with Stalin and now I'm mm. blocked. That yeah. wasn't a discussion. It was just, you're gone now. And what you're talking about is these sort of vague associations, like you're saying. Like, uh, I think Russell and I, last time we talked, we were saying people say right wing, not knowing really what right wing means at all, like or alt-right and things like that. Another thing, yeah, is media terms like fake news, you know. I always make it a point of pride not to start using terms that have just been introduced into the media, like let it rip and all that, yeah. you know. Really what we just talk about is this simplification. But the thing I would like to put your brains about is um, media in general. What, aside from the realities of this um, virus, what do you think has been happening in the media in the last 12 months? And, I mean, have changes occurred that you think might even be permanent? What would you say uh, about that? Two, I'll tell you the two things. Is that, interestingly, there was something that my brother told me about, which he'd read about, saying that there's not a lot in the way we see it, like there used to be, where there are reporters really on the ground scouring out stories and finding. He said, it's not really like that. He said, a lot of the time now, he said, they are just literally regurgitating like a copy and paste. Mm. And it sort yeah. of goes everywhere the same. They almost are buying story. You know, that'll do. That's the one that everyone's doing at the moment. There's not the investment into having sort of reporters all over the place now. I don't really watch the news anymore. In the morning, I used to get up, have my breakfast, turn on the news, watch it in the morning. Mm. And um, I think I began to switch off during the Brexit stuff. And definitely now I, I try and avoid anything I can unless it's seen in a tweet or someone else puts it out there and I view it. Mm. Don't watch any of the news briefings yeah, you know, I don't want to see a load of stooges that have been handpicked to say specific things. I'm not stupid enough to believe that that was a random four people. I could be wrong, but yeah, I don't excellent. believe that. And the news at the moment to me just seems um, definitely not independent. And certainly at the moment, it seems to be as if everybody's got together to say, well, let's follow a government line almost. You know, I feel more like the news is the sort of news I'd expect if I was in a communist country. You know, whether that's right or wrong, whether I'm being harsh or not, I don't know. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff there. And there's a lot of suppression of other news now. So instead of you actually hearing other news or other things, you really have to look for them now. And all they just are ignored, dismissed, slandered, you know. So there seems to be a weird place now we are with the mainstream media or suppression of anything else and purely telling us all the same thing. 
Yeah, I mean, imagine imagine that they've got to keep this story because it is a story. Let's but let's not be coy, you know. As well as an event, these things become news stories. This has been a story for a year. Like, what can you do to keep it going? You know, we've got twenty four hour news now. It's ridiculous. It's become uh, filling time. But I've also found it interesting that I don't. You know, I'm not really seeing any news of anywhere else. You know, when the pandemic, whether you call it that or not, began. I heard what other countries were doing, and then I don't think I've seen anything anywhere from anybody about anything for months. Not because yeah. people share, even if I don't follow the news, I get it. You, you can't avoid it. People on Twitter or on social media will share something I'll see. And um, my brother said, I haven't seen anything about really any news from other countries on what they're doing. I couldn't tell you what's happening in Italy, or I couldn't tell you what's happening. Yeah, you know, but when we began it, we were seeing everywhere else and now there's just nothing. So you don't really have a clue. Yeah. It makes me question why I could say at the moment, you know, we know there's evidence from a completely different outcome in Sweden, but we never, ever get, if this were a scientific experiment right now that we were living in, we'd say Sweden was the control one. A lot of the others did a different thing. They did something that we've historically never done before, but Sweden carried on and did what we've always done before. So Sweden actually was the control in the, in the test. Yeah. At the moment, if you mention Sweden, you're a pariah, you know, even though the statistically right now, the deaths per 100,000 are significantly and have always been significantly lower than ours and they're performing a lot better than us and um, they will end up better than us. But still, you know, if you if you tout something different, then, you know, we don't hear about that because I guess that's the question about the media. Why don't we hear about it? Surely the media would want to tell you that because surely the media would be one of the ones to inform the public of this difference and say, do you realise what's going on over there and what they've done differently? And this is the mm. result of that. And should we mm. not be questioning what we're doing then based on this? But instead, it's almost as if someone said, no, don't show any of that. You're not allowed to show any of that because you're not allowed to question what we're doing mm. or influence the public with any other favourable option than this. Well, I'm actually going to get a couple of journalists on here. They've agreed to, to come on. So that'll be interesting. Yeah, I don't think the average journalist is evil or anything. I don't think it's... It's that. It must be, you know, I've never worked in journalism, but it must be, as usual, coming from on high, you know, or maybe it's a, I don't know, it's part of the training, perhaps. I don't know. Well, I've heard there's been some journalists that have been, that have strayed. I mean, Peter Hitchens is one, isn't he? Oh, yeah. I've been watching quite a few talk radio videos, actually. Yeah, and he's, yeah. he's, he's you know, on a limb, and then you've got other people like who aren't journalists, but you've got Lord Sumption with different opinions, you know, Conservative mm. MPs, you've got Charles Walker, who's saying something different. He's already then tried to be attacked and, you know, that won't do his career any good in politics, but he's just being honest. There's a couple of, there's Anna Breeze. I don't know if you've heard of Anna Breeze. She was mainstream, but now isn't. She's had um, a YouTube channel banned, but she was interviewing different people with different opinions, scientists and stuff like that. Did Carl Hennigan's scientist, did he get a... Hennigan, yes. Carl Hennigan? Yeah. yeah. I think it is. And he wrote a piece and I mean, you know, you know he's a renowned scientist or whatever, and he writes a piece and you share it on Facebook and then Facebook puts a warning on it saying it's been fact-checked as untrue. Yeah. Who there in Facebook really knew more than him to fact-check that? And we don't realise in a digital age now, it's very easy to just put a stop on a URL and just mark that URL. Oh, yeah. yeah. So you've only got to say, we know that this person now is in disagreement. So any URL related to that, just fact check and put a warning or block it on Facebook. This is easy to do, really. It's a, you know, one person presses a button because 
that one central place controls whether that URL will be shown, banned, blocked, or you'll be deplatformed if you put it on. Just like the kid at school who's got different opinions, as we were saying earlier, you know? In a way, it's almost the same thing, isn't it, you know? Yeah, and everybody now. So we've got we've got um, the conspiracy theorists now. Um, mm-hmm. If you have any doubts and would like to wait to find out whether the vaccine is safe because you're not sure and you think you'd like because it's a new mRNA vaccine and it's a new type of way of doing it that's not the same as the ones we all had when we were kids, you're now an anti-vaxxer. Yeah, of course, yeah. You're labelled straight away for that, even though you're just saying, well, actually... For example, I'm aged between 40 and 60. Mm. When I last looked in November, the total death count from COVID-19 in the UK in November of people aged 40 to 60, that whole 20-year gap there, of healthy people was 378. So would I, if you said to me something's killed 378 people in a year up to November, from March to November, so not a full year there, I think you better have a vaccine. I'd probably say, well, I better stop riding my motorbike. Yeah, that's far more dangerous. Or I certainly shouldn't ride it when the road's wet. Yeah, you know, I, I better stop that straight away. Or is there a vaccine for that? What about cancer? What about heart disease? You know, what am I going to do? I mean, you know, there's a point where I'm becoming so risk adverse that if I would have a vaccine for that outcome, then I would seriously have to rethink everything I do in my life. That's maybe what it is. That's maybe what people are afraid of. You know, because that's that's what I have to do. Because you know, for me, the risk is. But you know, I think it's now nearly maybe 400 or, or probably under, possibly, I'm not sure, but, you know, of healthy people where I fit, you know, I don't have any comorbidities or anything. You know, that's the low number. If I accept a vaccine for that, then why am I riding my motorbike, which has a higher chance of death to me? Why would I do that? Because I like to. I evaluate the risk. And I know that one thing is certain, is guaranteed, is death. Yeah. You know, I know I'm going to die. Yeah. I don't walk around thinking I'm a Greek god, you know, and we control so many things that we almost think we control everything from death and there's talk of, oh, in the future we may never die. And we like to think we control everything. And I think there's an aspect of we will control a virus. We will stop it. We'll, if we lock you all in, we'll save you. I know when the last lockdown released, my friend Mike said to me, you know, first day of lockdown, he said, I think a couple of people died on their motorbikes straight away after coming out of the first lockdown and going for a ride. They died near his village and he just said, you know, they just roared down the road and got hit by oncoming car. You think, you know, they'd sat there locked down being protected and then went and wiped out straight away. Death's inevitable and I think it's very scary and none of us want to see it. But then we sometimes let our lives drift along where we can't even find anything to do on a rainy day other than flick through endless TV channels, looking for something to watch because it's raining a bit. Mm. We've got an obesity crisis in the world. And if you're crossing the road and I beat the car horn, you'll leap out of the way. Mm. But you don't leap out of the way of a donut. Right, I see, yeah, yeah. You know, you leap out of the way of things that are immediate, that are right there. And that's what we've done with covid it's right there. It's like it's waiting around the corner. Anyone could have it. The postman might have it. It's invisible. Dogs, you know, yeah, we think cats and dogs might get Your own pet might be harboring it. It's like this invisible thing, and we publish death rates daily. It's how many people die. You know, we've never published death rates for anything. We've never published death rates for flu before. We've had some horrendous flu seasons where we had 58,000 dead in a single winter. 
and we don't publish those. We never did before. Now we've got a rolling figure of death every day. You know, yeah. we are really making it, you may die at any moment. And we're just forgetting about the you know, 550,000 people in the UK that generally die every year anyway, of all the other things. Obesity being a factor in many, and even now being one of the major factors other than being infirm and old and above 80, the next major factor is obesity. But they weren't bothered that they were killing themselves or putting themselves at risk when they were actually eating because it wasn't instant. You didn't eat a burger and die right then. Yeah. You didn't overeat and die the next day, you know. It shortens your life dramatically, and you may pass away from a heart attack in your 50s, but you didn't change that. But you will, you know, wear a mask, lock yourself in and be scared of COVID. And after okay. COVID, probably won't change. You'll have a vaccine to fix it because it's quick, but you'll just carry on again. We've got to change and we've got to understand wellness and health and you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I just hope there's not, that we haven't gone past the point where there's a permanent change where, oh, I don't know. Like you said, it's compliance. I think you said in the other talk that I watched, people who are normally say, oh, I don't believe the government, they always lie and all that kind of thing. Suddenly they're all, they're all uh, just being strangely compliant. It's weird. Yeah, it is. It's because fear, isn't it? It's fear, right? Yeah, it is fear. But the problem is, I wrote this on a post the other day with, um, I didn't get into a debate about it, but someone was writing. Again, they were calling me. Yeah, someone put a post on Facebook saying, oh, I'm having a vax with a thumbs up and can't wait. And then about 20 replies came on, and I think about... 70% of the replies were, no thanks. And this one person vote, we're going to be in serious trouble if all these naysayers on here don't have the vax. And I sort of came on with a point to say, look, and I gave the numbers, I've said to you, you know, you look at my age and he's the same age as me and 378 people, blah, blah, blah. Admittedly, he's overweight. So you could say he has a comorbidity, but I put these figures down and everything else. And um, I also mentioned the fact that I said, you know, you, it's a constant dribble of fear and he wrote back it's nothing to do with fear no one's scared because who who wants to be seen as fearful it's a little bit like the whole being duped thing uh, who wants to be seen we, as fearful yeah yeah we all know that being courageous is valuable whether it's trying to get yourself a relationship with another partner or something else you know you don't want to say to them just to let you know i'm a sniveling wimp and i run <laughs> yeah a crack of thunder you know you yeah. Sort of go, oh, don't you worry. You know, I'd, I'd be there for you fighting it. So, you know. so I had to write back and say, I think you really don't understand fear at all. And I gave the example of, one, when I was younger, I spent some time where I did work in security. Mm. And I said, trust me, from me working security, the majority of people are not brave. I witnessed that firsthand. And secondly, you only have to turn on the news and see the last terror, oh, I don't know if it was a terror attack or what it was, but it was in London there with the students from Cambridge University where the guy had a knife. Oh, yeah. And uh, hundreds of people in London scarpered or stood in the distance filming, and only three people took him on. The lad that got killed who tried to attack two of the people with his skateboard, and he fought one of them with his skateboard, and I think he got killed, which is tragic. But if you're telling me that there's hundreds of people there and only three stood up and... How many times have you ever seen anybody, you know, in those situations where you've ever seen the crowd take on one? You know, they generally don't. And I would actually say once they get a taste of other fearful people getting together and looking like they have the now majority, they suddenly feel powerful. Often you're not motivated. You know, you're not trying to get the brave people on your side. You're actually just trying to get the fearful people to get together 
because they'll relish the feeling of bravery far more than someone who just is naturally courageous. Oh, very <laughs> interesting. Okay, this has been amazing. Uh, I want to leave with something positive. So what I want to do is say, <laughs> not that what we've talked about... That sounds no, like we've been negative while you're in it. <laughs> no, no, we haven't, we haven't. What I mean is... Um, I don't know, if you're assessing the what's been happening in the last year, there's not too many positives. You know, there's always yeah. kind kind acts between people, but they yeah, yeah. don't get the headlines, you know. But all I was going to say was, um, just to finish, so someone who maybe does want to start, I don't know, questioning things, what would you say to them? Is critical thinking something you can train yourself to do? Can you train yourself to be more sceptical? Because it'd be hard to think that someone who someone maybe grows up quite conventional or something that they can't change. You know, I, I believe people can change. So people can change. The only issue I'd say about it, you have to want to. There's nothing I can or anybody can say to spur you on. You know, I would just advise anybody to think about it a little bit like when you're watching a performance on stage, the spotlight is shined where they want you to look. That's where they draw your attention. And I think it's worth challenging yourself to try to look a little bit wider, look outside the spotlight for what's going on around. And that's a classic Darren Brown where he puts a banana on the stage, doesn't he? And then he says at some point in the show, a gorilla is going to come on and take the banana and run off again. And sure enough, it does. And no one ever sees it. Oh, yeah, yeah there's that video as well. Again, I used well, I went to his live performance and I never saw it. Uh, he did what's called London Underground and it was in the railway things. And it was a small, intimate thing. I was only like three rows back from the front. Hmm. Me and my wife went and... Um, it was a fantastic night, and he did some of his stuff. And um, although I didn't wasn't susceptible to a lot of the stuff everyone else was, the only thing I did miss was the gorilla. Didn't yeah. see it, and I mean, you know, how could I miss it? Isn't that amazing. You know? And not only did it come on, but it did a bit of a dance, ran off again. You know, so I'd say to people, you know, there's there's stuff going on around you all the time. Mm. Be more open to looking. There can be nothing negative to discovering more things. You know, to learning more things, to widening your scope. Because everything you're given at the moment, if you think about it, everybody else already knows. You're not telling them something they don't already know because that is what you're being given on mainstream media and the newspaper. You know, mm. We all know that. It's mm. there daily all the time. So there's no point regurgitating to someone that. What is it that you don't know? Actively go and find what you don't know. Yeah. You know, look for things that you don't know, things that maybe you're uncomfortable about. And take a step back as well. You know, don't get swept up. You don't have to, yeah. you know. Often it's what you don't do rather than what you actually do. Don't feel like you've got to be part of a group or that because you looked and you read into something that now you are going to become labelled something like a conspiracy. You know, mm. you don't even have to tell anybody what you think. You don't even have to discuss it. You can keep it to yourself, but just... Mm. Go and have a look. Learn about things. Don't take everything that you're told as just, well, if the source is the BBC or the source is this or that or something, it's 100% because, you know, I'm exposed to all the normal things for everybody else, but then I also go and look for somebody that disagrees. There's people on my Twitter, there's friends I have, you know, they don't agree with me on things. Hmm. I don't agree with them, but unlike that guy who felt the need to just hit the block button immediately, I like to have people who don't agree. Actively seek out talking to people you don't agree with. Yeah, particularly if it's someone that you know who does look at things and, you know, does critically think and things. You know, we've all got so much to learn from each other. And also, you know, people say, oh, the internet is full of rubbish and everything and disinformation. Yes, but 
there's also like hundreds and hundreds of amazing videos about critical thinking about self-improvement you know there's so much out there and there's really no excuse if you've got an internet connection not to make some i'm not trying to guilt people by the way (laughs) that's exactly what we've been saying we shouldn't do but just to say you know there's so many opportunities to self-improve you know and all you need is an internet connection there's loads of great stuff out there and yeah you've got to pick and choose yes but um we'll never improve our society and we'll never ever become better if we cannot accept someone else having a different opinion yeah, whether, whether that be about their religion or what they call God, whether they call God Jesus or they call God Allah or they call it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. You know, the fact that you want to believe in something else still makes you similar. Don't get swept up in what they call it mm. or what the rules behind it are. Or, exactly. You know, accept other people and always keep people around who disagree or have a different viewpoint to you. Don't push them away keep them around wow excellent can you just give us the details of your website and um the other stuff that you're doing yeah the website for the life coaching is austinmore.com and it's austin spelled a-u-s-t-e-n okay and uh yeah i I write different blogs on there quite often if you search back over my blogs you'll see stuff way back about all things to do with people Mm. uh, reality lots and lots of subjects going back uh even fear i've talked about fear and how to overcome fears and there's lots of things on there that uh, you might want to read and have a look at and active on twitter as well i see yeah and trying not to be controversial <laughs> all right yeah well thanks very much and um i'll be doing these journalism shows in the future so i'll send you those i'll be very interested to see what those guys say all right thanks again Thank and you very much. Uh, good have luck a good in evening. the future you too mate